You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Well, welcome all listeners. Uh, This is uh, the episode 29 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. 29, yes? Yes, no no dots. No no dots this year. We're, uh, this, this, what? We're all here. (laughs) Yes, we are all here. Um, Reunited and it feels so good. (laughs) Well, some of us are, 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 uh, are homeless, though. Um, I, I've been evicted from my office in the basement of Hark Park Hall, uh, listeners, because of uh, construction, and so now I am uh, sp- spending, well, half my time in the Park Hall Writing Center and the other half in Dogmas Johnny Evans' office. It's nice of him to give you his office, though. Well, he was he was kind of glad that he ended up with me and not someone that he didn't know, because a lot of us got evicted. And kind of divvied out to such faculty as we're not already sharing offices. So, anyway, it, it's it's a it's an interesting situation. I had to to choose last Friday which books on my shelf I think I'm going to need for the rest of the semester. <laughs> oh, wow, it's that long. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's uh, terrible. In, until the spring. Uh, on the other hand, I share my office with uh, six other people. <laughs> I assume you're in the same place, Nathan. No. <laughs> no, no, no complaints about facilities, anything. Oh, none, none right now. I'm, I'm looking around my office, surrounded by my books. No office mate. I think we all, we all wonder this, Nathan. All our listeners and me. Your office is like forty by sixty, right? <laughs> Glass <laughs> chandelier, big, big TV. Oh. <laughs> fireplace yeah something like that I, hey let me put it this way it's about the same size as my park hall office but there's no brian heileman in here <laughs> brian if you're listening love you dude <laughs> he's going to teach in amon jordan yes i know yeah anyway all right well <sighs> enough, enough UGA uh, gossip yeah enough uga gossip and catching up um, this week, uh, let's see, I saw another, uh, Bible post, uh, Nathan, and anything else on the blog, uh, you want to draw attention to? I saw a swarm of links. Yes, there's a links post, and there's also a review of Coffee House Theology by Ed Sosuski. I think that's how you pronounce his name, Ed, my apologies if you're listening. Uh, <laughs> and it looks like... Uh, I'm going to have one more book review. Hopefully I'll be able to put that up by this Wednesday. I'm actually finally writing a post again, so we might have something from me soon. (laughs) I'm not going to make promises. Um, Well, I guess if that's all the news that we've got, then uh, we can dive into our topic today, our unannounced topic. So at the moment, our readers or our listeners are still in suspense, I suppose. I'm sure um, they're all biting their nails nervously. 
They should be. Um, this week we're going to be talking about mentors, um, which uh, I, this is something that's been on my mind a good bit lately. Um, you know, for for reasons which uh, which I will make clear later on uh, when we you know get around to telling stories, but uh, mentors and mentoring is uh, always been kind of a. a uh, a, f a facet of education, and it's something at least that uh, in in discussions around the department at UGA, that's it's been kind of brought up again. Peer, the idea of peer mentors and faculty mentors, and how is that supposed to work? Anyway, so I thought it would be uh, something good to uh, to discuss. Uh, first, though, I think we need some clarity on the meaning, um, which I was a little surprised. I, I always assumed that I knew what mentor meant because it has that M-E-N-T beginning like mental or, or Mentos. Um, but uh, when I looked it up, I actually found it had nothing to do with, with that. Um, Michael, where does the word, word mentor come from? Well, I had no idea either, of course. <laughs> so I went to a Wiktionary. <laughs> And I found out that the English word mentor comes from the Greek character mentor from the Odyssey. Oh, which is why, by the way, it's completely wrong to say mentee. Yeah. Protégé is the, is the uh, so-called mentee. But anyway, mentor from the Odyssey is basically a substitute father to Odysseus's son, Telemachus. Or Telemachus. I don't know which way you pronounce it. I pronounce it Telemachus. Uh, so Odysseus goes away to fight the Trojan War, and he, he sends Mentor in to take care of Telemachus. And I think that that setup is probably a little more paternalistic than our modern notions of mentor-protege relationships, because, you know, Mentor is chosen specifically by Odysseus to take care of his son, and of course nowadays, the idea, for better or for worse, is that you pick your own mentor, that the relationship kind of develops naturally it's not not something forced on you from above i know we're going to talk about that a little later so i'll leave that that assumption alone for now but in a lot of ways i think that mentor is an apt term because mentors tend to pick up where your parents leave off and leading you through the travails of life and whatnot right and moreover within the story of the odyssey itself uh the goddess athena actually takes on the form of the man mentor uh, in order to impart divine wisdom on Telemachus throughout that story. And as I mentioned a few episodes back, I think it was the friendship episode, uh, this is one of the earliest uses in the Greek literature of the noun agape, in other words, divine favor from Athena to Telemachus. So mentors are a gift of a gift from God? Well, I'd, you know, to take a step back to a classical conception, it is a relationship between unequals so in other words it's not something where two peers are uh, collaborating on a particular project or even two friends in the Aristotelian sense are striving together towards some common end but rather it is inherently uh, a master and an apprentice it's a it's an uneven hierarchical relationship right well, and also the the uh, I, it was good that you brought up the Athena point, Nathan. Um, the the idea that the mentor uh, mentor in that story is also the human face of personified divine wisdom. Um, that are you going I, I, on us, are you grubs? Say what? Are you going allegorical on us? 
Well, I, 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 I honestly, I think Homer's Homer kind of pushes us in that direction, and I think the, the uh, fact that we've adopted mentor to to refer to that kind of that kind of role, I think, is already kind of taken taken the allegory. I just think it's shocking that a medievalist would read something allegorically. Yeah, <laughs> it is pretty appalling. It was such a literal time. Um. <laughs> Well, let's see. We've not only, you know, we've got this classical source uh, for for the word that we use, but um, I mean, it's it's not the only story that uh, I think we as uh, we as Christians can turn to for for models of this kind of relationship. Um, and when I look at scripture, uh, a, a particular pair of names stands out to me as you know the example of the mentor and the protege, and. I asked my wife, like, who would you think of as 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 the mentor and protege example in the Bible? And she said, Paul and Timothy. And I said, that's exactly what I was thinking. So I figured I was on to something. Um, you you want to say a bit about this relationship, Nathan? Well, sure. Uh, Timothy's family, first of all, seems to be one of those families uh, that is converted as a household because Paul mentions in one of his letters to Timothy that he's familiar not only with Timothy's parents but also with his grandmother uh it's definitely one of these situations that we see over and over in the book of acts where the entire family uh turns its loyalties turns its faithfulness uh towards king jesus of nazareth uh presumably away from uh king caesar of rome and because of timothy's potential uh because Tim- of timothy's desire to serve faithfully, uh, Paul does, first of all, take him along on some of his travels, and then also uh, some of our canonical New Testament books are actually letters from the more experienced Paul to the younger Timothy, uh, encouraging him to continue developing as a leader, and also, and this is interesting, uh, putting Timothy, who seems to be a younger man, in charge of administering and perhaps even selecting the presbyteroi, the elders of the churches that Timothy's working with. So mm. in that situation, it seems that although Paul uh, presumably is in prison in Ephesus by that time, uh, he selects Timothy rather than one of the presbyteroi to be his sort of voice in the city there, you know, his voice to the Christians. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's definitely one of those things where Timothy is not only a student, he's not only discipulos, um, or no, that's that's Latin, isn't it? Uh, he's not only matheta, there we go, that's the Greek word for disciple, uh, <laughs> but is also Paul's very voice there in the city. So, I mean, it's definitely a closer relationship, even than what we see between Jesus and some of his apostles. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's definitely a different sort of model than we see elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, Michael, is there anything you want to add to the Timothy vibe? As usual, I have nothing to add to your reading of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> so you would, you would see this as a, as a kind of a distinct model of, of teacher and student relation from, from Christ's own model in, in the Gospels. I, I certainly would. I mean, what I see is Paul writing to these churches, and he names people by name, uh, all throughout, you know, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, so on and so forth. And that seems to be the sort of relationship uh, that we see in the Gospel of John. As Christ sent me, so I send you. 
with Timothy, it's a lot more detailed. Uh, there's a lot more sense that Timothy's place in that community is analogous to what Paul's would be. Now, mm-hmm. the one we do see that relationship mirrored is in the in the book of Philemon. Uh, Paul seems to take the slave Onesimus as another protege of sorts. Uh, but again, you know, there's a different set of circumstances there because Paul is presumably trying to mitigate. Uh, the punishment that a runaway slave would receive in the ancient world. Whereas with Timothy, he seems to be a freeborn young man. So, I mean, there's definitely a sense that Paul is raising up someone to take over what he was doing before he was thrown in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting that the uh, the whole Catholic Orthodox concept of apostolic succession seems to come from a series of mentoring relationships, right? An older, an older uh, clergyman mentoring a younger one. Yeah, that makes some sense. I, you know, I, I think that, interestingly enough, you know, the Lutheran Calvinist model of things, you know, which doesn't have that direct laying on of hands connect, connection, uh, also has that sense, you know, in that it is a, it's a body of textualized verbal teaching that's handed down. But I think, Michael, you're absolutely right that there is this idea of continuity involved in this mentoring relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, I think of, oh, let's see, Polycarp and then Polycarp's disciple, um, uh, was it Irenaeus, I believe? Um, and Polycarp was, you know, according to tradition himself, a, a protege of, uh, you know, the Apostle John. And so, you know, the, we, we see even in, you know, the church fathers, this kind of from John to Polycarp to, I believe it's Irenaeus. Um, or was Ignatius of Antioch? Was it Ignatius? I get those I guys crossed. Yeah, for some reason, I think Ignatius was part of that chain of succession. Right. So David is cross-eyed. Well... <laughs> Possibly, it's been a long time since I've looked at the the the, those, the, the, uh, the post apostolic fathers. Um, now, given these models that we've cited, um, can we make some useful distinctions between mentors and say teachers or pastors or friends? I mean, is is this a a distinct model or something that you know we could we could just just as easily call it something else? The, the friend one is easy to take care of, right? Because Nathan's already done it. The, the mentor relationship is a relationship that is, by necessity, between unequal members. Mm-hmm. Right. right. In a good way, you know. Our, well, our democratic yeah. age is, is apt to hear that unequal relationship thing and uh, scream bloody murder. But I think we can all agree that the relationship between unequals is, is just fun. Right. I'll... Mm-hmm. It's just fine, you said? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, not just okay. fine. Just fine. I, I thought you said fun, right? Like, woo you know, uh, but anyway. no, no, like, Jesus is just all right with me. Right on. Uh, yeah, I mean, Michael, to follow up on that, you know, I think that there are arenas where even we moderns will allow this relationship between unequals. And the first thing I think of is uh, the relationship between players and coaches. You know, some of the people who are idolized as mentors, uh, even in the 21st century, are folks like, um, you know, Tony Dungy of the Indianapolis Colts is often held up as someone who established mentoring relationships, even with these 
giant egos in the NFL, uh, you know, and other folks who, especially coach college, I'm, I'm blanking on any names of college coaches. Mark Rutt. <laughs> are often praised for establishing mentoring relationships with their players. Mm. Well, Not that, that it's sure. helping Rick this year. <laughs> well, well yeah. Yeah. It shows up in kung fu movies a lot, you know. Um but uh well, I I guess, you know, the 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 pop culture one that we can pull out right away is uh, Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid. Um but it's it's a I mean, it seems like it's a, it's a relationship based on someone has a particular set of knowledge and skills and those things need to be passed down. Right. Let's see. Many of us... Uh, Don't we need to distinguish also between... Uh, we, we've just distinguished between friends. You also want to know the difference between mentor-protege relationships and the relationship between teacher and student. And I, I think those are, those are probably, probably similar relationships that are a, a difference of degree of intensity. Right, mm-hmm. a, a mentor-protege relationship is much more intense than a teacher-student relationship, but it's made of the same stuff. Mm-hmm. I think I'd agree with that. Um, what about pastors? Well, I mean, I think that's that's one of those where, because a pastor by necessity is engaged with a large group of people. Uh, I think that pastors often have protégés within a congregation uh, or even younger ministers of other congregations. But, yeah, I mean, the the mentor relationship, I mean, seems to assume a one-to-one hierarchical relationship that, at least in the modern sense, the the classroom teacher uh, who's teaching sometimes as many as, you know, 50 or 100 or 400 people at a time doesn't necessarily have with every member of the class and, and likewise with pastors. Uh, so I think, you know, both of those can be subsets within the pastoral practice or the pedagogical practice, uh, but it's not necessarily something that extends to all of the people within those settings. Okay. Uh, Nathan, um, I know in, in your particular tradition um, that churches are, are, are quite autonomous. And yes. yes. Congregational. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Um, is, is does mentoring of of young pastors does that play uh, a significant role in and how uh, churches in your tradition maintain their identity? Given you know that there's not like some kind of there's not a central presbytery or something like or 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 whatever. Right. This is actually, and you know, this is one of the places where congregationalism has its weaknesses in transferring a tradition from generation to generation. But this is, within my own generation, folks who went through Christian colleges, you know, sometime in the late 80s through the late 90s, uh, now that we are coming into our own as the intellectuals of congregations and also as the professors of our colleges, uh, this is a sense, this is a source, pardon me, of a lot of tension among the baby boomers. And the reason is that those folks, when they were coming out of Bible college, the big struggle was there was part of our tradition that was going denominational. They're the folks who became the Christian churches, disciples of Christ. And then Mm -hmm. the who decided to remain intensely congregational, uh, which became the, you know, independent Christian churches. Mm 
the fact of the matter is, folks my age just don't have a horse in that race. I mean, folks with whom I went to seminary are pretty regularly transferring over to disciples' congregations. They are pretty regularly going to other traditions entirely, pastoring Methodist, Presbyterian, and sometimes Baptist churches. Uh, and it is, I mean, there's a sense among the folks who are in their 60s and 70s now uh, that we are somehow betraying the movement. And then, of course, folks like me, uh, teaching here as I am at a Pentecostal college, uh, you know, we kind of say, okay, part of the point of our movement is to engage all Christians and be, you know, not one of our slogans is we're not the only Christians, but we're Christians only. Uh, you know, part of our point is we're actually taking the not the only Christians thing perhaps a little bit more seriously than the old folks are. <laughs> but, I mean, looking at it from their perspective, you know, they've worked their entire lives maintaining a certain tradition, uh -huh. even one that was militantly opposed to calling themselves a distinct tradition. So, I mean, they are living in a sort of dialectic tension that I have to sympathize for, even though as a 33-year-old deacon in a, you know, Stone Campbell congregation, I do have to say, I mean, that is a race that I don't have a horse in. So, I mean, it, it, the mentor thing is definitely a point of tension within my tradition. Hmm. Okay. Um, well, shifting from uh, matters ecclesiastical to matters academical, um, <laughs> a lot of us get in this game because we had a teacher or a professor who, who encouraged us, who was a role model for us, who made it look cool. I don't know. Um, I, I know this is true of me, and my guess is that um, that's a pretty general kind of experience. Um, so I, I guess we'll start with Michael. Um, were, did you have figures like this in high school or in college at various stages who turned you towards um, the discipline that you're in, who, you know, taught you, who, who encouraged you to pursue you know, what the life that you're in now. Well, I, uh, I picked the Christian college that I went to, to call, to call false college, uh, because my youth pastor had gone there and certainly I had a mentor protege relationship with him, at least, at least for a few years. And, and that, that relationship had cooled substantially by the time I actually got to college, but I, it was still a major relationship in my life. And that's really why I went to the college I went to. So that was the first one. I majored in English for the reason that most people who major in English do, which is I, I had a teacher in high school who showed me that literature could change lives or whatever, you know, however else you want to, however else you want to I'm so, I'm, I'm so uh, jaded that I don't, I, that, that, that phrase sounds so lame to me, uh, even though I probably believe it. Anyway, I don't, I don't call that teacher my mentor because we didn't really have a substantial relationship outside of class, but uh, certainly there were elements of that. And then I got through college with the help of a number of mentors, both from the academy and outside of it. And I did want to talk about two of them, that they might be listening. My more or less official mentor was the head of the communications department, of all things. Uh, his name was Jerry Flagger, and I'm almost certain that I wouldn't have survived the travails of my last few years of college without his support. I don't know if he listens to this podcast or not, but I'll give him full credit for my getting through graduate school. I also had a number of <laughs> older and hopefully wiser friends outside of the college. And since I think Jamie Bozeman, who does listen, I'll go ahead and mention that he and a few other people really helped move me into the adult world, and I'm forever grateful to them. 
Uh, I suspect Jamie is uneasy being called my mentor because that's the sort of person he is, and, and we never, I certainly never used that word to him. But there was something of that relationship between us as well, and I, uh, I appreciate it. Certainly I would not be where I am without, without those folks. Okay. What about you, Nathan? Well, in my own experience in college, uh, this was actually a source of fairly substantial guilt. I felt like I was doing something <laughs> wrong several years. And here's why, because a lot of my friends would spend hours and hours in professors' offices. Uh, they would have conversations with them. They'd be over at the professor's house. And I did go through my last couple years of college thinking, okay, there must be something wrong with me because I can't think of anything to go into their office and talk about. You know, And, and I didn't want to just go in there and sit silently in a chair while they graded papers or something like that. So You never I, had uh, girl trouble, Nathan? That's how it always began for me. <laughs> No, I never could get a date, so I, that really wasn't a problem. Well, that sounds like girl trouble to me. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, but at any rate, you know, when I got to seminary, uh, I impressed uh, my church history professor, uh, Dr. Fred Norris, enough that he picked me up as his research assistant my last two years of seminary. Cool. And he, he was someone who, even though I still had that tendency, and, and this is what always derailed me is that I always felt like I had to have something really good to talk about to drop into a professor's office. So I just never dropped in cause I could never think of anything good enough. Uh, <laughs> so, and I mean, that's still the case. I mean, you know, I, I, I really doubt that Fran Teague listens to this, but I mean, that's why I'm not in her office near as much as the other Shakespeareans at UGA are just cause the only reason I will visit her is if I've got really something really good to talk about. But let me ask you a uh, question, but, Nathan. Let me let me interrupt you. Go ahead. Just, just in case your students are listening, do you feel like you don't want to see your students unless they have something really interesting to talk about? Absolutely not. And like I said, <laughs> this is a disorder on my part. I mean, it really is a guilt complex. I mean, I just, you know, I just wanted I just wanted to make sure your students knew that you don't feel that way about oh, your office I mean, hours. Something you know, this will come up later. But you know, I mean, that's something that I try to make perfectly clear to my students is that you know my office hours are for their sake i do want to talk about things i do want to you know uh grab on to whatever conversations they want to have but you know like i was saying fred norris who is the church historian and theologian and uh also patristic scholar he he was really one of those wonderful polymath professors um and also he i, I found out late in my seminary career that he was he also had my philosophy professor from undergrad and my Old Testament professor in seminary as his research assistants before I took that job. So it was definitely a proud tradition I stepped into. But he would, this is what was so wonderful about him, he would sometimes literally grab me by the arm in the hallway and make me have conversations with him because I would not drop in on my own. And he really was one of those people who, you know, made me get into that sort of mentoring relationship. So, I mean, my natural tendency is not to seek out mentors. Uh, Fred <laughs> recognized that and beat me into one, and I am grateful for it. David, how about you? Hmm? How about you, David? Oh. Um, well, I mean, obviously, I like, like you, Michael, um, you know, why, why did I choose to go to a Bible college anyway? Um you know, a lot of the uh, the the elders and the pastor of of my church had gone to uh, 
Southeastern Bible College. Um, probably most most notably for me, uh, our youth pastor at the time, who is actually now the pastor of the church. Um, I say youth pastor. He 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 always denied that title. He said he was the associate pastor who was also the minister of education, and that involved teaching the youth. He he was always very careful to draw that distinction. <laughs> um, but yeah, Thad Thad Blunt. He he. I, I believe he he mentored me uh, to a degree while uh, while I was in youth group. We certainly had lots of conversations about you know matters theological and biblical and so forth. And I think part of part of the reason why I was interested in going to Southeastern was because it it produced um, it, it produced that blunt. Um, when I got to Southeastern, the the English professor there, uh, Gary Green, was actually an old family friend. Uh, we'd gone to church with them when I was very very small. Um, but at when I started going to Southeastern, they did not have an English emphasis. Um, it wasn't until my junior year, but by that point, um, my relationship with Gary Green had had been such that I I am automatically went to English because I wanted that particular mentor relationship. Um, he uh, and again this this is this is this dear dear listeners is one of the impetuses impetuses impetusy anyway whatever um, one of the motivations for this particular episode. Whatever. Tentative plural is of that. Yes, uh, is is that uh, uh, Gary Green uh, passed away um, the or just before this this fall semester began, and so I've been thinking a lot about the role that that he played in in my life, and also the role that other of my mentors have played in my life, and the desire uh, I, I've felt the desire to to recognize them and to. Uh, you know, to celebrate them, you know, b- before, you know, before the world and also you know, just that role and how much uh, those people, you know, contribute to our lives. But uh, but Gary Green was the first uh, English teacher that I had. I was homeschooled. So he, he was the first uh, the first person who who ever stood in front of a class and talked about literature and he made it look so cool. And uh, I thought, well, that. I want to do that. Um, I had a similar relationship in grad school with uh, Stephen Glasecki, Dr. Glasecki at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, who was their old English scholar. And he he made it look cool and easy, too. He would just walk into a classroom with his coffee mug and his notes scribbled on the back of a, of a three-by-five card that he never looked at and just sail through class on memory. And he could pull lines out of works just just by memory, and uh, it, he he made it look amazing. Class was, um, it, it was a performance, and it was enthralling, and uh, that's one of the reasons that I went to UAB is because I took some classes there, and I was just enthralled by you know by that particular uh, that particular instructor, and thought I want to come stu- study Beowulf with him. So I did, and uh, and then through through Dr. Glasecki, I met Jonathan Evans at uh, the University of Georgia, and we have a very uh, we have a good relationship. He's he he is a mentor to me, but it's interesting to me that the, the my mentoring relationships have kind of shifted. Um, you know, it's not that I don't admire Jonathan Evans; I do greatly, but I, I don't worship him. 
I don't I don't have that kind of hero worship experience that I did with Dr. Green and Dr. Glasecki. With Dr. Evans, I talk about jobs, applying for jobs. I talk about, you know, going to conferences and, you know, conference etiquette and how do you treat uh, how, how do you have a conversation with a prominent scholar that you've never met before? Things like that. And uh, I, I've really appreciated that kind of practical side of the mentoring experience with him. So, yeah, those, those, are, those are my, my four that I would cite. Now, Nathan, um, we're all readers by trade and predilection. Um, in my own reading, um, I know that there are some authors who have, you know, kind of followed me through life and shaped my perspective. I know that you've always been one to shun, you know, <laughs> mentors in human form. Um, yeah, are, are there any books or, or authors that you would see as mentors in, in some way? Well, this is one of those things that I always find out about after the fact. Uh, you know, I will read an author and enjoy an author, uh, but it's only when somebody starts to issue critiques of an author uh, and I find myself saying, well, you're just not getting this author. Yes. Uh, I realize <laughs> taking on that author as a, as a model, and I mean, a couple of the examples that immediately come to mind are actually not literary figures, but theologians, uh, especially... <laughs> Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament theologian, uh, he is a person whose books I have read and enjoyed. Uh, I've actually reviewed one recently on the blog. And his approach to reading the Old Testament, I realized when I hear other people interpreting the Old Testament uh, that I have internalized his way of doing it. Uh, so, for instance, you know, and, and I'm almost certain that Camden Busey doesn't listen to this, but when I hear folks talk about Old Testament texts on Christ the Center, I always find myself <laughs> thinking, oh my goodness, you are, you are systematizing all the good parts out of it. And then I realize, okay, why in the world would I have that thought? Well, the answer is because of Brueggemann's influence. Now, it's also true that I had some very good Old Testament professors, uh, Chris Hurd at Milligan College, uh, Robert Owen and Rodney Werlein and Chris Ralston at Emmanuel School of Religion, uh, but, you know, their approaches were not as singular and distinctive as Brueggemann. Now, the other figure who I think that people get wrong more often than they get right is Stan Hauerwas, who was actually dissertation director to my theology professor in college. Uh, and it's one of those things where I hear people mischaracterize his work, quite frankly, uh, and I find myself stepping up to his defense uh, far more often than I should, and I realize that he has become uh, an intellectual influence on me. I, I would say because neither of those people has directly spoken to me for more than a sentence or two at a time when I've gone to their public lectures, uh, I wouldn't think of them as mentors in the old Homeric sense, uh, mm -hmm. but they are strong enough influences that uh, I think of myself certainly as their disciple, even if, even if not their protege. Uh, yeah. yeah. Other books that do that to you? Yeah, I get I get that with Walker Percy, who I mean was dead for ten years before I ever started reading him. But it's because of Walker Percy that whenever I listen to the BBC forum, and they try to uh, fit 
the human being into purely uh, neurological categories that uh. uh, that I get hot <laughs> under the collar and have to turn off my iPod. It's it's, it's because of, it's because of Percy and the things I uh, I learned, especially from his nonfiction writing. So I think I think he's he's the big one, and uh, Car- Carl Bart to a lesser extent. But uh, if if I if I had to if I had to say my worldview was colored by by one um, intellectual figure, it's almost certainly Percy. Yeah, well, I was thinking about um, you know, no surprise, mine would uh, uh, I would cite C.S. Lewis, but it's because I grew up with Narnia books, and that at each stage of my life, it's like I found something else that he wrote. Um, you know, as a teenager, I found mere Christianity. When I got into the academy. Uh, when I got into English studies, I found, uh, you know, his scholarly work on particularly on medieval studies. Um, you know, at sad points, uh, I discovered, you know, at sad points in my life, I discovered a grief observed. Um, at, in, in some creepy way, it's like at, at, at different phases of my life, I found a book by C.S. Lewis where he he talked about that experience often because he was ruminating over his own experience of it, and right. now, Mike, yeah, now it, so that Michael can put it on the show notes, the uh, book on medieval studies is that the discarded image. Uh, the discarded, ev- uh, the discarded image. Um, he also wrote a really interesting um, uh, kind of prologue, prolegomena, something or other, an introduction to uh, the early modern period. Which uh, has a super long name that escapes me, which is also good. But yeah, uh, but be... yeah, the discarded image is is fantastic. Now, have either of you ever written a fan letter to uh, one of your uh, current academic heroes? No, I have not. Hmm. I could. I have, and yeah. uh, I, I've gotten responses, and uh, it's it's very gratifying and it's very humbling, and it's 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 a. Uh, it makes you think even more highly of. Again, I, I I couldn't possibly call those people. And the, the people who've written me back, by the way, are uh, Ralph C. Wood, who's probably my favorite Christian literary critic ever. R- Ralph C. Wood and um, James K. Smith uh, emailed me back when I sent him an email. I couldn't call those people my mentors, of course, because the extent of my correspondence with them is one or two emails. But I I, uh, I found them very gracious, and I figure that in, in their own in their you know face-to-face teaching careers they must they must be excellent with their students if they're willing to write back and answer questions from some doofus they've never met Mm -hmm. that that was kind of my impression too i mean when you when you read i i think there are these particular authors that if you know kind of the if the personality that found its way on the page was so engaging and made you feel so much a student of theirs, how much more must it be, um, you know, to have actually met them? I don't know. I, I really admire people like that. Uh, who knows? Maybe maybe one day we'll all be able to write like that. And, you know, in the, you know, Christian Humanist podcast, the second generation, they'll be talking about us. Well, I, I throw away any emails we get. I don't, I don't bother answering them. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's not a great way to do it. Um, well, actually, though, that, that kind of brings up the, ne- the next question that I had, which is we're transitioning from students to teachers, right? Um, we're already teachers um, as we're kind of rounding out our last phase of being students, or at least professional students seeking a degree. 
Uh, I imagine, you know, well, we're never going to stop learning. Um, I hope not. Yes. As Peggy, as Peggy Hill says, I'm a teacher. I shouldn't have to learn anything. <laughs> well, you know, as I go about trying to, you know, kind of slog through this whole being a teacher thing, um, you know, I've tried to think about how can I best emulate my mentors um, and how can I be a mentor. Um, but I haven't really got any idea of how to go about that. I mean, do I just kind of like go out and grab some kid and say, Hey, you're my protege now. Or, I mean, what, 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 what do I do, Michael? Uh, I, I've wondered that myself. It's one of the things I'm really looking forward to about being a grown up professor, as I like to think of it. And, and I've, uh, I've tried to, to sow the seeds for those sorts of relationships in the two, the two academic jobs I've had so far. I've not had a whole lot of luck at TCC Tallahassee community college where I teach now. Uh, and I think, I think my lack of luck there is largely because community college students aren't looking for that sort of thing from their instructors. Not that I can tell. At least they're not looking for that from me. <laughs> but when I was a graduate instructor at UGA, I, I did find a few students who I think I mentored, at least partially. I've had several of them become English majors and give me credit for it, which is that's a, that's a really gratifying email to get. And, and I always mm -hmm. want to tell them that they're going to end up homeless and depressed. <laughs> like me but uh, you know even so michael i've had two tell me that they changed to philosophy majors because of my class you felt so, guilty didn't you imagine the guilt <laughs> <laughs> but as to how to go about getting a protege i think if you make yourself emotionally available to your students if you let them know that you want to help them and that you care about them as more than lines in your grade book i think those relationships are going to come about rather naturally and surely you've had that happen for you david and you were just speaking rhetorically well i've had those kinds of things happen but i have no sense i i, I don't know what i've done to do that except for be friendly when i lecture you know you, you have to be david grubbs <laughs> you know what i mean that, that that's what you have to do you have to be a human being instead of a professor because yeah. nobody wants to be mentored by uh, a uh, the professor robot. They want to be mentored by the human being. <laughs> I shouldn't say nobody because God knows I know graduate students who would love nothing more to become than to become the professor robot because they, for some reason, admire one of their uh, teach bots. But uh, <laughs> but I don't. I I think most people, if you act like a human being, especially somewhere like UGA. Where if you're teaching freshmen, you're the only teacher who possibly knows their name. Because right. all their other freshman classes are 300 people. That is right. true. That has been my experience. They, Michael, they, they always came gonna, to me. What's that? Uh, that that's what I was going to follow up on is the fact that at UGA it's very difficult too because the vast majority of your students you're never going to see again after your one or two semesters of comp. Right. Uh, so I mean, you know, uh, that was definitely a frustration that I had there that you know, is becoming very gratifying here at Emanuel. You know, this is only my second year. Uh, if I can stick around for two more years, which I plan to do and certainly hope to do, uh, you know, I'll be at the point where I will have been familiar with a significant segment of a graduating class. I've, I've, I'm told that's a really mind-blowing moment when, you're, when yeah. your first class graduates. I, I imagine it will be, you know, and, and one of the things is, you know, I teach the 
uh, capstone senior seminar here. Uh, so I've already seen a couple of my crops of students uh, graduate in that context. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, the, the folks who I started teaching as freshmen, that is certainly going to be something different. Um, you know, as far as, you know, being a mentor, you know, I think Michael's right that the, the human connection has to be part of it. Uh, I mean, I, I would expand on that just to say that, you know, one of the things about the students that I see here at Emanuel is that the ones who have time to be mentored often are looking for a credential and then they want to get the heck out of here. The ones who are possibly the best protégés are the ones who are so fiendishly overscheduled that you never get a chance to see them. <laughs> it, the, best, the, the best combination is people like me who were depressed and had no social life. <laughs> Clearly. That's, I'm not at, kidding, man. I, I'm not that's, kidding. I uh, that, that's a therapeutic relationship. It's more than that. I mean, that about you know a good percentage of being a mentor is about being a therapist. I'm sure, mm -hmm. but yeah, oh yeah, I had uh, I was uh, I was in a sad state in college. Well, well I, and this might be just me compensating for my own prickliness, uh, but you know I've noticed here at Emanuel that it tends to be the older professors who have proteges. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, it, it, th there is something to the idea that someone who has established a certain gravitas uh, is going to draw Telemachus figures more readily than someone like me who's two years into this thing. Which you would mm -hmm. think wouldn't happen. You'd think they'd be drawn to the younger professors, right? Maybe, but I, I, I don't know. Cool. I mean, you say it, you say, I mean, we say that and we think, you know, to relate to the young, we must ourselves be young. But, uh, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, my, my professor, Dr. Glosecki at UAB. He was a, you know, big man in his 50s with a bristly walrus mustache. And he was Wilford Brumley. Well, uh, no, no, he, he, he was like a big, he was like a big burly academic Viking. Um, <laughs> And his his sophomores adored him. They hung on his words. They thought he was amazing. Well, and, and he and he was. He he was he was just a fantastic professor. But uh, he used a word to describe the way he interacted with students, which I thought was absolutely perfect. And that was the word avuncular, um, which means like an uncle. And I, I just thought, figured. I just figured Nathan knows the music the kids like. He likes the movies they like. I mean, what <laughs> eight, what 18-year-old Bible college student doesn't love Biz Marquee? <laughs> oh, here we go with this again. <laughs> well, but I mean, but but I Oh, snap. Well, maybe I I'm blessed with um I'm blessed with good uncles. So when someone says, you know, avuncular or the the uncle you know, the, a relationship like with your uncles, to me, that immediately makes me feel warm and fuzzy. <laughs> um, because, yeah, I, I know it's, it's like it's a close relationship, but they're not your parents. Um, you know, there's still, a, a, you know, inequality. It's a it's it's a kinship, but it's not, you know, it's not immediate in your family. And, you know, you you look up to them. And I, I, I don't know. I, I think that's that's a word that hopefully I'll grow up into 
hopefully, you know, maybe, you know, put another, you know, 10, 20 years on me and some more gray on my head and maybe I can pull off a vuncular. <laughs> um, I guess while, while we're on this uh, topic, we should expand it out. Um, while we're talking about 10, 20 years in the future when we're gray-headed and avuncular, um, when we're finally able to open the Christian Humanist University. Oh, we're back to Christian Humanist U. Yes. Christian I figured Humanist out our, our mascot is going to be the Christian Humanist Engineers because choo-choo. Yes, I gave this serious thought, folks. <laughs> oh, yes. Choo-choo. Uh, okay. All right. All right. I get because uh, when you first said that, I, me I was immediately thinking about guys that design bridges. What? Yeah. Well, you know, it's no worse than the University of Connecticut uh, Huskies. UConn. Well, uh, uh, oh, I never thought of that. Anyway, when we open the Christian Humanist <laughs> University. Um, now, see, are there ways that we could, as an institution you know, kind of encourage mentoring relationships between faculty and students. I mean, Nathan, is this, is this something that a school can make happen? Oh, goodness. I'm, I'm just trying to think back to my own Milligan days. I mean, if there had been some sort of system where I had to be in a professor's office, uh, it might have done me some good, but it might have driven me even farther away from it. And, mm -hmm. you know, like I said, I think that Dr. Norris's efforts in seminary were meaningful precisely because he, as a teacher, uh, would grab me in the hall and make me have conversations. You know, it wasn't something that was part of his weekly schedule. Uh, mm -hmm. It wasn't his obligations. It was something to where I got the sense that he saw in me the potential to be a good teacher, and he wanted to develop that. So, I mean, it's one of those things that you know, I think that there is a place for uh, requiring things in college. You know, I, I do not apologize for requiring my freshmen to read Plato. Uh, I don't apologize <laughs> for making them learn to think rhetorically. Uh, but I do think that because of the one-on-one -on -one character of the mentoring relationship, it would probably be better to encourage it but not to require it. Uh, now, as far as facilitating those sorts of things, I think that, you know, one of the things that happens on our end, like I said earlier, is that, you know, with experience, with exposure, uh, with whatever that intangible reality is that develops, that accumulates around a professor as a professor spends time around an institution, uh, I think there is a certain amount of mentor accretion, for lack of a better phrase, the <laughs> professor develops. So, I mean, I think that, you know, on a very mundane, you know, accountant level, I think that it's, you know, going to be something that a, a, a college like Christian Humanist U, uh, who actually goes to great lengths to retain those professors who are teaching well, uh, in turn, develop very good mentors for students who are seeking mentors. Michael, okay. I'm, I'm rambling at this point. I mean, what would you add to that? 
Well, there's a couple practical things I can think of. I, I agree you can't force it. You can only facilitate it. And here's a few things I think most Christian colleges do the first one, and the second one is something they could do. So the first one is most Christian colleges, I think, require faculty to advise students instead of having a separate office of advising. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a good idea, even though I know it's an enormous pain in the neck for the, for the faculty. I know that can't be... That can't be fun, but at the very least, it, requ- it Actually, makes students I come to your office. Because, I, I, you know, my first year, new faculty here don't have to advise, so I was terrified of it. Uh, but this year, it hasn't been as bad as I thought it would be. All right. my head. So, so that's one way, I think, although I didn't really develop a uh, mentor-protege relationship with my faculty advisor. The other thing I think you can do, and uh, TFC required four chapels a week, believe it or not. Four chapels a week, which I, I think is far, far more than most schools. But one nice thing they did was at one of those chapels, the Thursday chapel, I think, instead of going to the main service, you could break off into what they called Barnabas groups, which were led by a professor or sometimes two professors and had eight or ten students apiece. And you would go and you would work through a book or you would just talk. And I thought that was a really great way to get to know a professor outside of class. Uh, to, to kind of share things with the professor. And they, they were usually, I should say, they were usually gender um, gender exclusive, although not always. But I, I think that's probably the best thing I saw that a Christian college can do in terms of facilitating mentor-protege relationships. Uh, thinking back to Southeastern, uh, what, what you say there, Michael, they, they did, they did uh, I remember some things like that with chapel. Uh, where they would uh, they would have small groups that the that the past not pastors that the professors were leading, um, and that really did help. Um, even more than that, though, uh, there was one lunchroom, and yes, the, the faculty ate in the same place as the students. Yes, um, they were around us. They were they were always around us. They, we were constantly in amongst them. They had their you know their families would would come and visit the, uh, the, the campus. We knew their children. We knew when, uh, when Dr. Snyder's uh, wife was pregnant with their second child, and we were all so excited and so happy when that baby came. Um, we, were, we knew that, you know, that uh, Professor Waldrop was uh, defending his dissertation, and we all waited with bated breath until we found out that he'd successfully defended and we were all so excited that we could now call him Dr. Waldrop. Um, and it, granted, it was a very small school, but I, I think within within a larger school, this is something that can work at the department level. Yes. But um, just just being around them and, and allowing students to have access to faculties uh, human faces, not just their their classroom faces or their across the desk faces, um, uh, that 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 can make, uh, I think, can make can make these relationships happen very naturally without without having to legislate anything. That cafeteria thing is essential. Nathan, do you eat with your students? I try to when I can. I you know I'll I'll, I'll be frank, just because I'm so often playing from behind, I often just bring my lunch and eat in my office. Uh, but I do try to get down to the student mess hall whenever I can. Mess hall. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> well, I, 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 hmm. I, I think 
uh, and let, unless you all have any more uh, really helpful things for all the school administrators that are listening to our show. Hire uh, me and David Grubbs to run your mentor-protege program. <laughs> all right. That was very practical, Michael. Thank you. Um, well, I think that pretty much wraps up this discussion. Um, what have we got on the plate for next week? Revenge. We are going Re- to talk about... What did we do? <laughs> If, if I told only be expecting it. <laughs> uh, we are going to talk about early limitations on revenge, early justifications for revenge, biblical prohibitions against revenge, and how Christian history has managed to ignore those prohibitions. <laughs> and we're going to get our revenge on all the neo-Calvinists and uh, emergent podcasts, right? <laughs> yeah, yes. With- a bloody dagger in each fist. We will laugh. Ha ha ha. So where are you going to listen? You're going to be walking around in blood. <laughs> there will be blood. Yeah. And will we drink their milkshake? And you will know us by the trail of dead. <laughs> well, I guess that wraps it up, dear listeners. Um, this has been a, a fun conversation for us, and I hope... Uh, uh, encouraging for you if you have mentors um, I encourage you to uh, take a little time this week and you know send them an email or something like that to you know let them know how grateful you are um, and if you have uh, protege relationships um, you know value value those and pour yourself into them because uh, you never know where that might turn out um, who knows one day maybe your protege will start a podcast where they talk about you um, so uh, I wish you all good weeks and uh, for Michael Farmer and for Nathan Gilmore this is David Grubbs from the Christian Humanist Podcast leaving you with the words of Luther let your sins be strong but let your faith be stronger